0: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is New York Times bestselling author and retired Navy SEAL, Clint Emerson. His new book is 100 Deadly Skills, Survival Edition, The SEAL Operative's Guide to Surviving in the Wild and Being Prepared for Any Disaster. Do you know what to do in an active shooter situation or how to apply trauma medicine after a catastrophic event? In his New York Times bestseller, 100 Deadly Skills, which was published in 2015, retired Navy SEAL Clint Emerson focused on showing the predator mindset. In his newest book, he demonstrates how to survive in the wild and defend ourselves from present danger. Uh, Emerson spent 20 years conducting special ops all over the world while attached to SEAL Team 3 the National Security Agency, NSA, and the Elite Seal, Team 6. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Clint.
4: Hi. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, I understand you're surviving in Las Vegas, as you said to me right before the show, so good luck. Um, <laughs>
4: yeah, yeah, you need the skills out here for sure.
0: You do need the skills. I might be terrified if I were in Las Vegas, but I'm safely in the studio. I guess it's safe. Um, Clint, so you've been on the show before when, you, when your first book came out, and unfortunately, a lot of things, a lot of tragedies, a lot of crises have happened since then. And so you've written another book, which has a lot of new kinds of—I call it—stuff or in it, so we can learn how to protect ourselves in crisis situations. Now I know the book is separated into like out in the wilds. I'm not—I'm not, not going to talk about so much out in the wilds. I want to know what you do, like in Las Vegas, or you do at the movie theater, or uh, you know all those kinds of crises, or the kinds of crises that we, you know, in a in a club, um, so which is what. Chapters that your book covers. Okay, so let's start from. This is a new book. Why the new book, and uh, what kinds of new things that we're going to learn from this?
4: Yeah. So the 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 new book really tackles today's threats, and there wasn't there isn't like a playbook out there for people to kind of open up um, and digest easily on what to do with certain events, especially the headlines we keep hearing, whether it's active shooter or. You know, for a while there, it seemed like there was a runaway train once a month or a subway. Um, And then, of course, you've got some virtual stuff, you know, like virtual kidnappings that have become popular and ransomware. So whether it's cyber or, you know, bullets flying across a room, I wanted to give people at least a start point on tactics they can use in order to survive these types of situations. And the the big contrast between book one and book two, book one kind of shows you more independent skills that you can use to get yourself out of sticky situations that were practically invented by bad guys or guys like me, special operations guys. Um, and then the second book is more strategy, you know, how to properly prepare and how to properly respond. And as long as you've got, you know, good preparation and a good response, then you've just increased your odds of walking away from, you know, whatever crisis or tragedy that, uh, you know, came walking around the corner.
0: Well, given our society, given what's happened today, are you saying we all need to be prepared? Just your average Joe or average Jane, we need to be prepared or even our children, I guess. But uh, it's, I guess it's critical now considering the atmosphere or what goes on in the United States. And if you're traveling abroad or anywhere else,
4: yeah, of course. I think I'm I'm not a prepper or a guy that sits around with foil on my head, you know, not letting aliens read my mind, but I am certainly, you know, a realist. And what used to be wrong place at the wrong time is quickly becoming any place at any time. And you kind of have to embrace that a little bit. And at least it's 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 just better to know all these skills than to ever have to use them. But if you're in a situation where you don't know them, then you know, it's kind of uh, you're kind of doing yourself an injustice, really. You should. Some of this stuff is very basic, and we've uh, we kind of we've kind of forgotten the basics. You know, we rely on technology to uh, solve some of our simplest issues these days. And when you constantly rely on that technology, then you start losing some of your your natural instincts to to do certain things when when uh, when a good day goes bad. So yeah, you gotta you got to learn a couple of skills, know some of this stuff. Um, hopefully no one ever has to use it, but it's just better to know it than not.
0: Right. If we're going to start, I want to, because well, actually I think it's the first chapter in the book where it, it says become crisis-proof, and it's kind of very practical, and as you say, it's just having the information at hand if you need to use it. So let's talk about becoming crisis-proof, and, and you start with situational awareness. What does that mean? What do we? What is situational awareness, and what? Do, how do we become situationally aware so that we can become crisis proof?
4: Um, situational awareness really is a combination between what you observe around you, and gut instincts, and knowing how to kind of compute all that together. I mean, how many times have we, you know. Bang our bang our heads against the wall, going. I saw that, or I knew something was going to happen, but you didn't do anything about it. You know, that's situation awareness is actually paying attention to the clues and cues in our environment, and also our gut instinct, and actually making decisions based on that. And that awareness is is key because you have to see these things going on around you, which means you have got to pull your head out of your phone and you got to actually look around. It's not something that you just turn on overnight either. It's just like any, like any habit, any good habit, it has to be developed over time. So you've got to, you know, pay attention, especially like, you know, when we're driving, right? Okay. Give yourself a, you know, a a new rule that, okay, when I'm driving, I'm not even going to look at my phone. I'm not even going to look when I stop at a stop sign or a red light, just leave the thing alone and see if you can make it from home to work without looking at your phone and paying attention to everything around you. And, Slowly start implementing that into your daily habits, and it'll become like a seatbelt. We don't remember putting our seatbelts on and taking them off anymore, but we do it. And that's where you want to get kind of your situational awareness to where you're always kind of paying attention to everything around you, but you're not having to use so much brain power to do it because at first it can be exhausting, really. I mean, you can pay attention to everything and not see anything at all, you know, Um, and you don't want to do that. You want to slowly implement it into your daily lifestyle. And uh, and hopefully you'll start realizing the things that you need to pay attention to and the things that you don't, especially if it's the same route every day to work and then to home.
0: Well, what about I want to have I'll give you examples or I'd like examples of things, let's say, that I do uh, every day or maybe not every day, but most of the time and. One thing I hear you saying is put down that cell phone wherever you are, because you really can't be aware of your surroundings. I, I take the subway a lot. Let's say I'm in Penn Station a lot. I uh, I take uh, public transportation. I'm in the airport a lot. Uh, restaurants, nightclubs those i mean and those are pretty typical of a lot of people so what would you do take each one of those what would you do besides just put your cell phone down because you can't be aware of anything if you if you're on your cell and and the truth is when you go in those when i'm sitting on the subway everybody's on their cell either playing a game or if they can connect to wifi then they're connected and and talking and texting and it's very quiet uh, but no one's looking up uh so yeah. Yeah, so start with those kinds of actual you know, and the, and, situations.
4: That, yeah. yeah, and those kind of congested environments on on, on on basically a confined space. You know, that's what these trains and subways are. You know, there's no place to run. There's no place to hide. So really you've got to, um, usually what happens is we all, we're real good about paying attention to our three-foot bubble, but you have to learn to look beyond that. Look over people's heads. Look down the cars um, and kind of, Look way ahead at the horizon line and work your way back. And depending on where you are and what you're doing, then you're going to, in that environment, what, you know, you're going to ask yourself, what threats am I looking for right now? And you're going to play out scenarios in your mind like, okay, if somebody popped up right now and started shooting, what am I going to do? And you visualize it. And you're thinking to yourself, okay, there's no place to run. There's really no place to hide, but I can at least get down, get lower than the other people around you. Um, and then increasing distance from that shooter. Okay, I know I can run that way. You know, I can run away from him. If I increase distance, it increases survivability. So it's important when you're in all these different environments to take a moment to what if something happens. And the more you do that, The beauty of it is, is that you're basically creating decisions and you rather have decisions already made when things are calm than to try and make decisions when you're in the middle of, you know, a gunfight going on. So you want to, and the more that you kind of cycle some of this stuff, uh, the better you'll be at it. And the, and the the likelihood of surviving will be increased exponentially, uh, later on. And that's kind of the goal, you know. So you're playing almost a game because you're, uh, you're what ifing. And when you're what ifing and you're actually looking around for the answers, that's, that's observation and that's situational awareness.
0: What specifically, okay, let's take that example the subway. You said you, 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 you get lower, you get down so that you're not hopefully not in the line of fire or you get less out of the line of fire. And once you get down, you're, you're supposed to try and move away from, from, the, from the, the shooter. But are you not supposed to call attention to yourself? Does, how, how does that work? I mean, will you, by moving, call attention to yourself, or do you pretend that you've already been shot, or what do you do?
4: No, I mean, so there's a mantra that's been, uh, it's been you know, indoctrinated by the FBI and a lot of other agencies, run, hide, fight. So there's three options that you, those are the three options you have, and they're usually in order, right? If you can run, you should run. So but the first thing you have to do is get down regardless. I mean, hit the deck, get down. What people don't know is when gunfire goes off and like built inside the building in closed environments, the way the sound of that blast travels, um, it can sound like it's right outside at your office door. When in reality, it's, you know, two hallways away. And that's the pattern of that, that, that gunshot sound and the sound waves makes it really hard to determine what direction the gunfire is coming from. And that's why in these in a lot of shootings you have people that, that inadvertently run towards the gunfire because they think they're running away from it. And so the first move you're always going to make is get down, right? I mean, there's other people around you, so you're not going to be the only one. But you don't want to be the one that's running around frantic and crazy towards the bad guy because you hadn't ID'd him yet. So you get down you identify where the gunshots are coming from, then you go into run mode. If you can run, right? You, you run a run away from the gunfire and ideally you're running from cover to cover. You know, you want to run a little ways and get behind something, keep your eyes on the bad guy. And when you know he's not looking or he's shooting somewhere else, then you're going to take off running again. And you want to consistently run from cover to cover to cover and making sure you keep your eyes on the guy. If you can't do that, Then hide is the next option. This applies to like malls or any place where you've got, you know, a bigger environment to work with so that you can hide behind planters, bollards, you know, concrete walls. You always want to choose to hide behind things that stop bullets. Um, If those things don't exist, then then you can move to something that conceals you. So the difference between concealment and cover, cover stops bullets, concealment, only hides you. I, I compare it to like hiding behind the curtains. Um, it, they can't see you, but it's not going to stop a bullet if they're stray rounds or if they just decide to start shooting everywhere. Um, and if you cannot hide, now you have to fight. So once again, confined impairment, like if you're in Orlando and you run into a dead end, like a bathroom, which you should never do. You do not want to run to a bathroom as a safe haven. Uh, it's a dead end, there's no place to go, and you're left with only one option, because you can't run, you can't hide, so you have to fight. And so when you fight, you want to grab improvised weapons, you want to team up with other people, and you want to kind of task-organize yourself. If there's only two of you, there's, uh, there's you want to use big macro movements when you try and take a bad guy down, right? This isn't going to be a five-minute-long kung fu match, you know, like you see in Jason Bourne movies, your fine motor skills are not going to work with that much adrenaline and fear and every other emotion you've got going on. So you have to rely on big motor movements, which is grabbing, holding on, tackling. You know, it's not going to be any, you know, cool moves. Or, and then and, and plus, what you see in the movies or see anywhere else, Those are people that do it full time. If you're an MMA fighter and you're doing this stuff eight hours a day, great, then use all those, those skills. But if you're just an average Joe or Jane, then you got to keep your movements big and macro. So the general rules I always put out is if you can, the first thing you got to do is get control of the weapon. Okay. That means one person is dedicated to getting control of the weapon. The other person is dedicated to controlling the body. And the way you control a body in in the MMA or fighting world is either the head or the hips, right? Because both in in between is the spine. So you want to hit them in the hips or you want to grab them by the head. And then wherever the head or the hips go, the body will follow. So one person traps the weapon. Another person um, tackles or grabs hips or head and uh, get them to the ground you know, push that weapon against the ground, put all your body weight on it while the other person is controlling the bad guy. And then hopefully by two people making moves, it becomes contagious. And then everyone else starts to help you. But a lot of times, you know, if one person, you know, panic is just as contagious as as calm, right? So you always want to opt on the side of calm. If one or two people stay calm or if one or two people decide to fight, other people will start to follow, and that's kind of the goal. But if one or two people start to panic, then everybody else will too. And so we want to, you know, make calm the contagious factor, not panic.
0: But, Clint, what about somebody? I'm thinking of myself, five feet tall, 105 pounds, and I'm picturing myself tackling. Uh, the, you know the perpetrator it would be impossible so I can't do that and I'm a, no, with another girl it's not yeah so what uh, do I do yeah, what do I do not, it's not uh, yeah.
4: impossible first I think you a lot of times they look um, in these shootings you look at a predator and you go okay one it's it's more than likely a male um, but got, you got you can't give him too much credit I mean if you look at Virginia Tech he was like a hundred and ten pound Asian kid. Um, If you look at some of the other guys, they're they're not formidable adversaries by any means. And the beauty of them being in the position they're in is they have a lot of vulnerabilities that most people don't know. It's the first time that this person is going to be shooting people. It's their first time to be doing live fire in this open kind of civilian environment, you know, like out in the open like that, whether it's a mall or a school or a theater. Um, they can't always have their back against a wall, right? Their back is vulnerable. Their adrenaline is flowing too, which means their, their vision is very tunneled and they're just looking exactly where they are shooting, leaving their flanks completely vulnerable. So you can attack these guys from behind, from the sides, and they won't even see it coming because they're just so focused. If they're mentally unhinged, that's even better because now they're, they're probably not really paying attention to the obvious things because they, they've got mental issues. If, it's a, if they're emotionally charged and angry, then they're definitely not paying attention to what they need to be paying attention to. So you have the opportunity to, you know, literally run and tackle them. There's a 30-foot rule. You know, if you're within 30 foot of a shooter, you have an advantage. Um, police, law enforcement do tests all the time. And so, you know, when the cop draws his weapon and backs up at the same time, what he's doing is he's increasing that distance because they know that if someone ran at them, if they're within that 30-foot bubble and someone runs at them, that person has a chance of getting the weapon from them before they can even pull the trigger. Because whoever makes the first move uh, has the advantage when you talk about reaction time. So. If you're within 30 feet of a shooter, then you should run towards and tackle that dude when he's not looking, but you have to, that's the, that's the courageous part. That's the part that I stress in the book that people have to start getting up and doing something, not just sitting there. Um, Unfortunately, the FBI did a study years ago after the Mumbai attacks over in India and asked everyone, all of the people that survived those attacks said, Hey, so what were you thinking? You know, well, we only thought. Two things: they were either going to die, or they were going to be rescued. Um, and the reality is, is not many people think about self-rescue. You know, they think they're going to die, or the cops are going to come help them. Um, but there's too much lag time, you know, between nine-one-one calls and the cops actually showing up. And there's a gap there, and that gap, you have to fill. You know, we have to fill. People have to start fighting these guys or doing the right thing. Don't just sit there and be a sitting duck. And And earlier, when you mentioned, you know, play possum, that's not a good idea either. You know, people have survived by pretending to be dead, but there's a lot of dead people that can't say that they were playing dead because they're dead now. Because a lot of these bad guys, even though you're laying on the ground, they'll still shoot you twice just to make sure. So, so
0: you have to be on the. You're saying being on the offensive. You really have to be on the offensive, not on the defensive all the time. There's one thing that you said too. uh, You said these guys. Are not necessarily so familiar with the surroundings. And you might be, like you said, like I go into a club, I know the club. I, and if I'm aware of what's wh- where the doors are, where the exits are, and, and, and have a sense that person who's doing this shooting for the first time doesn't necessarily know that. So take that as an advantage that, that they, they may, they're off balance to begin with. And that puts them even more off balance because they're not necessarily in familiar surroundings.
4: Correct. Yeah, you're, you're, you're playing it out just right. So you're playing these, it goes back to awareness, right? You're paying attention to everything in your environment, and you're thinking through the things that you would do. And by doing that, when it's nice and calm, increases your odds of survivability when things get crazy.
0: Now, we don't have that much time left. I mean, uh, there's so much in the book, obviously, but we're just touching on a couple things, but I'm about to take a, I'm not going to tell you where I'm going because this is going to be on the air, but uh, a, a big trip. And you sort of cover that in, in, in the book, situational awareness, like, tr- you know, this applies obviously if you're in your hometown, but also if you travel a lot. Um, don't make yourself look obvious. Don't make yourself, you know, look like, you know, uh, this is one of the things you said, like, Don't wear jewelry that stands out or designer names on your clothes or uh, just look a little bit gray. (laughs) Uh, Correct, yeah.
4: So I've broken down awareness into four main pieces in the book. And it's situational, which we touched on. You have personal awareness, which is, you know, take a look in the mirror before you walk outside cultural awareness you know all you got to do is google where you're going in the do's and don'ts and make sure you know what the do's and don'ts are because those apply to what you're wearing like you're going to go to india you don't want to be carrying your your rawhide cow purse um you know because they look at cows much differently than we do so you wouldn't want that pattern on a purse roaming around in india uh you might get some bad looks and and the whole idea is being gray you don't you don't want to draw on attention from criminals or even the general population because you did something stupid that that counters their their culture or their religion so um and then the last piece is third-party awareness and third-party awareness is knowing that hey people are going to observe you and pass judgment without even knowing you based on how you talk based on how you walk that's all projection and demeanor management and in the book i cover like hey these are you know You have to think about these things these days because that's the difference between, you know, being targeted and not. And, when I say being targeted, it could be, you know, especially when you're traveling overseas, it could be a foreign intel service, you know, that like to watch Americans because they think any American coming in their country is a spy. It could be, you know, third-party awareness could be, you know, criminals that just want to either, you know, take your purse, take your wallet, or mug you for the jewelry you're wearing. Um, So, you know, you have to take the personal awareness into consideration when you pack your bags and when you walk out the door you don't uh and then there's 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 some defensive stuff too for women especially you know a ponytail is great you know cuz you know it keeps your hair up and you're not so hot especially if you're in hotter environments but it's also a handle that a that a bad guy can grab a hold of and control you like i said earlier control the head i can control your body um and then, you know, lanyards and jewelry. Or if or if you go to work and your company requires you to wear a lanyard and a badge around your neck, make sure it's a breakaway lanyard. You know, you don't want a bad guy being able to get a hold of that and, once again, be able to control you with it. Um, you know, if you can wear, you know, pants versus skirts, then do so. You should always wear shoes that you can run or fight in. Um, shoes become also one of the most important things you should have by your bedside or near you in case there's like an environmental disaster. A lot of times people go to bed at night and there's an earthquake or who knows what anywhere in the world. And now you're left barefoot trying to, you know, get out of trouble with nothing but debris that can cut your feet up. So shoes are heavily under, under like prepped and planned for, you know, the possibility of like natural disaster while traveling abroad. But I always say, Hey, you can, you know, shoes that you can run or fight in, and you can load your shoes with a little bit of money, a razor blade, a handcuff key, and these are all three things that can get you out of trouble if you need to.
0: And those are things I think that the average person doesn't think about. I mean, I, I think about traveling, I think I, have a, I bring a, I always have a flashlight. Well, that's a good thing to have, but I exactly. never thought about yeah you know I have sandals, probably uh, by the bed. I would never think of having like you say like shoes that you can run out of there in or that you will protect your feet in case of a natural disaster or whatever um the I mean all of these things are so i guess they're also doable i mean it, which and there is just so many things in the book, and also that what we haven't covered is all the stuff that you can do when you when you're outside I mean, that that's a whole other area of uh of, of protecting yourself. Uh, we have a minute left website. We can go to great book. Um, yeah, so it's, the website, um, yeah. you can,
4: all the links for the book, is, both books are at a 100 deadly com. That's one zero zero deadly com. There's links to Barnes and Noble, Amazon, you name it, anywhere books are sold. Um, these books are sold to Walmart and, uh, um, uh, yeah, and, and all the social media is the handle is at, you know, 100deadlyskills.com.
0: Great. As always, Clint, thanks so much for being on the show. Clint Emerson, New York Times bestselling author and retired Navy SEAL, his new book, 100 Deadly Skills Survival Edition. Have a great day. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show.
1: The experts call toll free right now 1 866 472 5787 and ask our all star team to answer your question. That's 1 866 472 5787. Thank you for calling VoiceAmerica.com.
3: Or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417. Or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com.
1: All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus. Creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in the sea around us, said, All at last, return to the sea.
3: You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788.
0: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Uh, joining me this morning is Robert Weiss, social worker, LCSW, and international sexpert, His new book is Out of the Doghouse, a step-by-step relationship-saving guide for men caught cheating. Thanks to online technology, the once clear line between fidelity and cheating has blurred. As an author and therapist who has dealt with digitally driven relationship issues since the advent of the Internet, Robert Weiss has become the go-to international sexpert on exactly this situation, with an ability to clearly delineate what constitutes cheating and infidelity in the 21st century. You probably have seen... Uh, Robert, uh, in the New York Times, CNN, Psychology Today, and even the Huffington Post. Nice to have you on the show today, Robert.
2: It's my pleasure.
0: Well, you're this. I, I'm labeling you as the sex expert. Maybe you've labeled yourself as that, but uh, you've had lots of experiences in relationships, in in uh, heterosexual relationships, gay relationships, and now this new book. I guess you've chosen to just focus on digital cheating in heterosexual relationships?
2: That's. Uh, I think that's a <laughs> fancy way of saying guys who cheat on their women.
0: Guys who cheat on their women. Okay. So what's right. the difference in the 21st century? What's the difference between, and what is cheating? What's the, I guess we have to ask, what's the definition of cheating digitally? Digitally. Because well, uh, it's I obviously, it it's what? Yeah, I'm
2: sorry. I think, I think it is something you kind of have to ask because, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't know your age, Catherine. I'm not going to ask it, but I know when I was... And I'm not out, going to tell you. <laughs> cheating had something to do with, you know, we were working in an office together, and we found an attraction, and maybe we hung out late, and then maybe I liked your perfume, and then we were smooching, and, you know, it had something to do with something that happened between people in real time. And if I'm looking at porn and my spouse doesn't know about it and they found a 1,000 images on my, of my computer of porn, mm-hmm. they are going to feel like they're being cheated on. And so, but there's been no live person... The person doing the cheating may say, "Oh well, my dad, my, you know, he looked at Playboy, so I look at this. What's the big deal?" And I think, in that per- from that perspective, women have a very difficult time uh, explaining to men what it feels like to them to be betrayed. The men don't get it. It's just an image. What's the big deal?
0: Well, isn't Anthony Weiner sort of an example of that? Did he really cheat? Did he cheat? I mean, he was online. Right? Well, let he me was, give uh... you.
2: I, I think you know. I think that would be maybe an extreme case because I'm not particularly interested in talking about people who, I've spent my life and career working with people who have sexual and romantic problems. So what I've been able to do is take 25 years of working with people. I've probably worked with 800 couples who've broken up or been challenged by breaking up over infidelity. That is the main issue I've dealt with over my career. So the question I ask myself is, what makes couples successful in the way that they're able to reclaim trust and heal a relationship versus the couples that aren't? And um, I came up with a few things that mostly had to do with the guys about how what it would take to make a relationship work after betrayal. But you're right; we have to we have to define it. So I would define infidelity in the digital age as um, any profound secret that you're keeping from your primary partner. So I could be being financially unfaithful. You know that watch I said I wanted to buy, and I was just going to take ten dollars a week out of my paycheck, and you said no, we need the money for the kids' college fund, and I just ignored you and took that $10 a week anyway out of my check, and you never noticed. And three years later, I walk home with this beautiful watch, and say, look, honey, look what I got. I got this great watch. I I did it, and you're not going to be happy because I've cheated on you. I told you I would do one thing, and I've done something else. So cheating is the betrayal of trust in an intimate relationship. Um, When you profoundly love and trust someone, and they do something they, they consciously know would go against your values and beliefs and hurt you, then you've cheated on them. You can cheat on them financially or sexually or romantically, lots of ways to cheat. And I think that takes it out of being in real time and in person. It uh,
0: it. takes it, You say it takes it out of the real time and being in person. It doesn't necessarily have to do that. But I'm really interested in, like, because there is a difference, isn't there? I mean, I want to get back to that thing. If you're cheating, on lo- cheating online as opposed to cheating in person, what...
2: Well, I like hey, you. Um, uh, I would like you more now because you sound like most of the men I work with. We'd say, what's the big deal? And, but I have to respect. Well, you.
0: I, you know why, don't you? Because I grew up with three brothers, an ex husband, a boyfriend, two, three sons, and a grandson. So I do think a little bit. So here's the inter- deal.
2: If, yeah. if we're in a relationship and I say, hey, I look at porn occasionally, what's the big deal? You don't mind, do you? And you say, oh, not at all. You know, we all have our private lives and that's our relationship. And then one day I walk over to the computer and I see a bunch of personal images, you know, sexy images, I might think, oh, how embarrassing. You know, that's his stuff or her stuff. I shouldn't be looking at that. But if you never, if I have a belief that you have that you don't involve yourself in online imagery or online experiences and we're married for a couple of years or in a relationship and one day I walk over to your computer and I find out that you've been extensively involved with other people and with images online, even though you may not have touched physically, I'm going to be very hurt and I'm going to be very angry and I'm not going to understand why you didn't let me know, know about that. So, again, it isn't so much whether you look or you don't look. It's not about right or wrong. It's about the integrity of the couple. Um, are both partners aware of what's going on in this relationship and anything that might cause it to be um, the rupture? And these days I see a lot of relationship ruptures because men don't seem to understand why it feels like betrayal to a woman, for some women, and how to how to fix that. And I wrote of the doghouse, Not even so much to describe cheating in the digital age, but more to describe how to heal from it, because my my experience is that men really don't understand the depth of pain that betrayal costs a woman, and quite often they have no idea how to fix it. You know, candy and flowers, uh, vacation in the Bahamas, uh, three weeks of being nice to you. You know, what's going to take for you to get over this? And that's the approach of most men that I've worked with, and that doesn't seem to heal betrayal trust. It takes a little bit more than that.
0: Well, so what does it take? It doesn't take the candies, the flowers, the jewelry, the trip to the Bahamas. So what is the nature of being able to get back on track in the relationship and, and trust? It's all about trust and being able to trust this yes. person again.
2: Yes. So you have the key, really, Catherine. You know, um, for one thing, I, and this is why I called the book Out of the Doghouse, is I think a man who has um, sexually romantic glee cheated on a partner really needs to understand that for her, that might affect her entire life. Guys, you know, we, we tend to be a little more capable of objectified sexuality. We're built that way. We can go to Vegas and have a lap dance at a, at a bachelor party and think, well, that has nothing to do with my marriage and beside my relationship. And besides what she doesn't know won't hurt her. And that may work until she finds the receipt for the lap dance in my pocket. And then it's not going to fly. <laughs> so, um, the healing is about saying, okay, I realize now that I have harmed my home, that I've done something in my home. Like, you know, I have a little dog. When he pees in the house, he goes out to the doghouse because he's dirty at our home. He's harmed our home, and he needs to know he's not being given away, but that he doesn't get the comforts of home and all the love and affection and warm bed and sweet food that he gets every night if he's going to pee in the house. And I use that metaphor in the same way. I say, guys, you know, your job kind of was to protect and look after the home, and you're the one who dirtied it. So guess what? You're no longer equals in this relationship. Your spouse is one up. You're one down. You're out in the doghouse. And they already know it, by the way, because (laughs) they're not getting, they're not lying in bed with their spouse. They're not getting the sweet treats. They're not getting the good stuff. They already know they're in the doghouse on an emotional level. And my job is to tell them, look, you know, it's a long road out. It may take a year or more. And it's never going to take, never going to go away with, will you get over it? And why aren't you done with it? And when are you going to leave me alone? It comes... The, the healing comes with reliable and trustworthy actions over time. And my proving to you that I really do understand the degree of hurt that I've caused you, even though I may not agree with you, that in my, from my perspective, it was hurtful, you know, because for me, it was just a lap dance in Vegas, and, but it was hurtful to you. And so I think it's bringing the attention to the feelings of the spouse and letting the spouse know I really get it. And by the way, every spouse may not feel that way, and that's fine, but the majority of the spouses that I've worked with feel that the man they're involved with who's cheated on them doesn't really understand the amount of pain they've
0: caused. And so what happened? You've had so much experience, okay, in dealing with all of these companies over the past 20, 25 years. So in your experience, do people end up, once that person, you're talking about the man, the male, has cheated, how often do they stay together in in the end? I mean, what are the statistics? And I imagine
2: Well, I can tell you the folks that I work with, about 80 80 to 85% of the couples stay together. And that's after profound, really profound, long-term infidelity and cheating. And um, the reason they stay together, I think, are two reasons. One is that um, we're working very hard with both members of the couple. So the spouse comes to understand that they have been hurt, they've been wounded, they've been victimized by someone that they trusted. And that they get to have all of those feelings and they get to be angry and they get to feel like a victim and they get to really um, not be the nice, sweet, warm person they've been. And, you know, we, we really work with the partners, the guys, the guys have done the acting out to help them understand, you know, whatever that is, um, the long-term process of healing. So you have to understand, and I know you know this, is that, you know, couples have a lot more going on than just fidelity. I mean, in the moment in the pain of a, a, a cheating or an affair, it seems like that's all there is. But one of the things I've noticed about most betrayed spouses who come to therapy is they come to our offices, and oftentimes, not perhaps you and I, but oftentimes the therapists will say, oh, well, you know, you, you're you're putting up with that? You're, you're living with that? What are you doing with that guy? And my experience with most female spouses is when they first find out about infidelity, especially if it's fairly profound, they're not looking to leave. They want to know what street they were on, and which truck hit them. You know, they're so stunned and confused and overwhelmed by what's happened that they want to see somebody to help them get through the day. And so I think a and lot of... I, I think of one that, thing that
0: you're touching on, which is important to, to really point out, it's not just, as you say, it's not just... Well, they don't just have a sexual relationship. The relationships are very complex in terms of they have a house together, they have finances yes. together, children together, and, may, and uh, lots of other different reasons why people... Stay together, or develop, a, or have a relationship to begin with. So uh, it's it's not just who you sleep with or don't sleep and I, with. And or and and I sleep agree.
2: With. You know, I really I think it's important if you're a friend of someone who's been cheated on, or a mother, or a sister, or you know, a pastor, or to really be careful about saying, you know, well, uh, what are you doing to that guy, or why are you staying there? Because as you said, you know, uh, there is the immediate pain, but the spouse also knows they have kids, they have family, they have church, they have house, they have. So many things that bind. They have a history. There are many things that bind. Things that bind people together. And just because there is a a tear in the fabric of the relationship, because there is a loss to it, doesn't mean that you throw out the baby with the bathwater. And the reason I wrote this book is because I think men can find their way back to healing in a relationship. They just need to know how. And when I said step by step, I mean this book reads like, hey, dude. You really screwed up this relationship, and it was important to you, and you don't know what to do now. Let me tell you, and you're probably not going to like me. <laughs> All right, so give us
0: some of the specific guidelines, Robert. Give us, like, let's let's start with, okay, this is what you need to do. It's, it's Well, just, I
2: think at first, yeah. you know, if you're going to be in the doghouse, you kind of have to acknowledge that you're there, and that means you're no longer in charge in the relationship. You don't get to say what time dinner is. You don't get to say... Um, you don't get to come home at five thirty when you said you were going to come home at five. You don't get to forget to call at three o'clock when you said you were going to call at three o'clock. In other words, you no longer have the the um, flexibility in your relationship to do things in a way that are, you would be easily forgiven for under other circumstances. Part of the being do- being in a doghouse, and any guy who's ever been cheated on, who's ever cheated on his woman, will tell you. That, you know, all of a sudden, everything is important. He didn't call on time. He didn't come back on time. Who was he talking to on the phone? How long was he talking to them? Spouses are hypervigilant. They're in a trauma state. They're thinking, oh, my God. And, and I think this is really important, too. One thing guys really don't get is that for them, it's, okay, I hurt you. I let you down. But, you know, it was just sex. I mean, it wasn't like I don't pay the bills or it wasn't like I'm not taking care of the kids or it wasn't like... and. Uh, I think what men don't understand very often about that is women are more tend to be more holistic thinkers. So for a woman, it isn't just, you know, you, okay, you went off with that person and you did this, or that I can't trust you in this area. For a woman, it's much more holistic. What does this mean for my kids? What does this mean for my family? And by the way, if you cheated and lied to me about that, what else are you lying to me about? So... In part, you have to understand the perspective of that woman before you can be the man who does, who participates in the healing. And you have to understand as the man that she doesn't trust anything you do. You know, it's not like it was just cheating and everything else is fine. She doesn't trust if you come home late. She doesn't trust if you miss a bank payment. She doesn't trust you at all. So we're really back to square one in terms of rebuilding trust. And rebuilding trust first comes by understanding the degree of pain you've caused and then understanding that, wow, we're not equals in this relationship anymore. I've really let this person down, and I have to win my way back. And then it's about what are the steps I need to take to win my way back, and that's not, as we said, candy, flowers, and vacations. That's really reliable, consistent, accountable actions over time so trust can be rebuilt. Well,
0: how do you a man to think- get... Begin- I want to stop you there because, how as you're describing what you have to, what the the male has to, the has to do, or the part and male partner has to do it, it almost sounds like I'm feeling like, oh, now I've you know the spotlight is on me. Every little thing that I do is going to be scrutinized. That would drive me crazy, even though I've done something, yes, that I shouldn't have done. But it's sort of like I'm I'm either being treated like a prisoner or, or like a little kid who's done something bad. How do you? Yeah. Sort of
2: and the answer, my answer to that is, welcome to the doghouse. That's what it happens when you hurt your family and you hurt the person you love. You don't get the affection. You do get scrutinized like a stranger. Your trust is broken. And if it drives you crazy, imagine how crazy it must have driven your spouse to imagine you've been out having sex with other people. And by the way, I want to say this. It's really important to me, and I say at the beginning of the book, if you want to have an open relationship, if you and your mate decide that you want to be sexual or romantic with other people, go for it. It's none of my business. I'm here as a therapist to tell you how to conduct your sexual life. That's up to you. You want to have threesomes, you want to have four, I don't care. But if you come to me and you tell me that you made a commitment to someone about how you were going to live your life together, and then you change the commitment without letting the other person know, then I'm here to tell you what the consequences are of that behavior and what it takes to make it better. And I would say to you also, you know, if I cheated at work by, you know, taking a few dollars and moving them here and there... I think it would be a long time before anybody would let me get back into the books and work with the finances if they didn't fire me right off. So why would we expect in a romantic relationship to be forgiven in three months or not to be scrutinized or to think that that spouse is going to to greet us with a smiling face three weeks after we come home having having cheated? It's just not going to happen.
0: So it's literally it's a breach of contract, whatever that contract happens to be between the couple, between the two people, right? And so relationship no integrity or
2: right? integrity—the word integrity—simply yeah. means comes from integration. It comes from coming together, making things one. So if I am the personal, and, and let me back up and I say, I think I think the people who are most Healthy are the people who lead the most integrated lives. You know, they don't have any big secrets. They're not living in compartmentalization. Everyone knows them, and who they see pretty much is who they are. So when you take a part of your life in a romantic relationship, and you portion it off, and you say, this is just for me, and I'm not going to tell my spouse about it. This is mine. And then you're out of integrity. Because you're no longer taking a part of your life and you're becoming two people, the one with your spouse and then the one you're doing when you're having the affair or having sex with other people. So healing has to do with reintegrating, which means being completely honest with your spouse, completely open with your spouse, being willing to take that risk that you're going to tell them whatever it is they need to know because your goal is to heal the relationship.
0: Robert, do you think that men, let's say one gets married at age 25 or 30 years old, and you are going to live to be 80 years old, mm-hmm. really, that it it doesn't have the capacity, and women too, actually, to be monogamous for 50 years?
2: Well, now that is a different topic. I'm um, just throwing that in. I would say that's a different book, which is the one I haven't okay. written yet, which is Well, I'm Um, waiting for that book. And I'm glad to mention it. You know, I I think that our culture in the last 35 or 40 years and throughout has given men a pretty good idea of what women want in relationships. You know, um, at least in general. Consistency, monogamy, affection, attention, uh, romantic, remember things, you know, all that stuff. Um, I don't think we've done a very good job of letting the culture know how men think about sex. And men can think about sex in a more objectified way, and it can be possible for a man to have a sexual experience outside his relationship and not really be doubting his relationship. He just did it because it was like a good workout. And unfortunately or fortunately, women don't look at it that way. So um, my answer to your question is it's not my job to say that someone should or shouldn't be monogamous, that, that someone can or can't have a commitment for 50 years or whatever. That's not my job. My job is to say, look, you know, if you guys are have been together for twenty years and either you've had sex with other people and you really want to, let's negotiate that. And you can go out and do that, but don't do and go and do it and not tell the person who thinks you have your their back. They're the person who you most trusts you, and you're going out and doing something that ultimately you know would make them feel very badly, and you haven't let them in on it. I would rather see a couple fight it out about one person wanting to be less faithful or wanting to go out an adventure than I would or one person to find out that they've been lied to for 10 years. It's a whole different game.
0: Now what about, and I i know obviously the book is um, a step-by-step relationship-saving guide for men. Caught for men. Cheating, but, but I also want to just ask you, because you've had so much experience, what about when women are caught cheating?
2: Well, <clears throat> uh, I didn't write the book because... Um,
0: I have several I books for you to write after the show. Right. I
2: have a few, too. I'm <laughs> um, working on a book of sort at the moment and trying to eliminate that concept, but that's another conversation. Um, uh, I'm sorry, what were you It went right out
3: of my head. My
0: question uh, was, what about women who are caught cheating? Uh, yeah, I mean, because actually in the certain. course of when you're treating, I know in my experience as a social sure. worker, and you, you, you're perhaps the presenting problem is the man, uh, had an affair, but then as the, the, the course of the counseling or therapy goes on, you find out, well, the, the wife has also cheated, maybe not well, let me try right this. Now, First but
2: it, of all, um, uh, let me answer your question directly. Um, okay. I'm speaking in generalities, and I wrote the book in generalities in terms of how women tend to be and how men tend to be and what we know about the neurobiology of male and female responses. And so if you look at things like Mars and Venus and books that talk about how men and women think, Um, it will really help you inform why I wrote the way I wrote it, because men and women do think differently. Uh, We have similar brain structures, but some things we think about differently. So um, in answer to your question, um, when a woman experiences betrayal, she experiences it globally most often. In other words, what about my kids? What about my family? What about my home? What about our love life? What about our family? What about our history? Um, When a man is cheated on, he tends to take it more personally. Like, wasn't I I good enough provider? Wasn't I a good enough lover? Wasn't I a good enough... So the, the way that a woman would experience that, it would be a different kind of wound for the man. You know, uh, he wouldn't... I mean, certainly he would be concerned about the family, concerned about all those other things. But he's kind of hurt in a way that's very, very personal. And it's not that women aren't. Um, women certainly say, I, I, was I not pretty enough, was I not attractive enough, all of that. But women have a much broader view of the pain and the hurt and the loss. And men t- tend to see it more in personal terms. So, um, uh, you know, it would be a different kind of healing for that woman to understand the pain she's caused her husband. And um, But that's not the wounding we see out there most of the time. So I figured, and by the way, I work with gay men, straight men, you know, whatever, whoever it is, but I'm looking to see where do we see most of the pain in the culture and the misunderstanding. And it seems to be around men healing these situations.
0: Do you think, I'm wondering, and this is, I don't know if this is a question, that's kind of off topic, but really isn't because you're talking about we're wired differently. men. Are from yes. You know, yeah, we, and, and physiologically and all of those kinds of things. But also some of it does become, as things evolve in the 21st century, we only have a couple minutes left, I think it also becomes situational as well. Now that women are out in the workforce, perhaps equally as men, their opportunities for cheating are more available. And so I think there is more cheating. I mean, I th- I think women are, uh, I'm not placing so wait, judgment let me get on this right. it.
2: But- let me get this right. I just want to check this out with you. So yeah. someone finally writes a book for women to really be understood in terms of how it hurts them being cheated on and finally pushes men back and says, look, guy, you've got to take a look at what this does to a woman and how it affects her and what you really need to do to heal it. And you want to talk about women cheating. And I'm just saying, I'm just challenging like I would challenge a client. It's yeah. like, I get it. I understand it. But, but the big issue in the culture is men. Um, women seem to be able to, for the most part, find a way to heal relationships. Women are more relational. Women have more capacity for empathy. They tend to uh, listen and defer in relationship and then be empathic about what was said rather than compete and contrast. So, Women often have a better skill set innately to heal a broken wound. Also, I think it's not unusual for a woman to pretty quickly get in touch with why she's been cheating, which is very different than uh, the reasons that a man might cheat. So, and I'm kidding you in a way, I'm pushing you back because I feel like, hey, I finally wrote this book. We're going to say to guys, this is not okay, and let me tell you what you need to do. And, uh, you know, whether we get to women or not, I don't know. Right now, I'm getting the workbook together for guys. If I hear a huge, I'll tell you what, I'll hear a huge cry from the culture about, what about women who are cheating? But I would expect I'll hear that from men. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we have to wait and see. We have a minute left. This is a great conversation. We have to continue this conversation, but let's make sure Absolutely. that people have the opportunity to read the book because it's Robert Weiss's new book, Out of the Doghouse, a step-by-step relationship-saving guide for men caught cheating uh give us a website to go to and then we have to say goodbye
2: um, my website is robert weiss msw.com and you can find out of the doghouse anywhere amazon all over the place and this is a book for women to buy read and throw at the men they're mad at
0: <laughs> fantastic <laughs> thanks so much for being on the show today
3: it's i'm katherine zox your
0: social worker with a microphone and you're listening to the katherine zox show